Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England. This is episode 126, An Uneasy Calm. Now the date is October 1396, and we're in a field near Calais in the north of France, at a place called Ardre. I could never do that R-E sound at the end of a word in French. Anyway, there you go, Ardre. The field is a mass of brightly coloured tents and pavilions, and in the centre of it are a mass of French and English knights. They are apparently all on their knees, weeping for joy, at the sight of the French and English kings Charles and Richard, walking between them, accompanied by the greatest lords of their respective countries. Richard was dressed in a long scarlet gown, emblazoned with his symbol, the White Heart. Charles VI, the French king, was equally richly dressed, and they shook hands and kissed, which is when all the weeping started. They were there because both the kings were anxious not to fight any more, and like Henry III, Edward I and Edward II, peace was to be brought by marriage between the French and English royal houses. Richard's wife, Anne of Bohemia, had recently died, and he was to marry Charles's tiny-wee six-year-old daughter, Isabel. But almost as important as that, this was a king competition, a king's beauty parade. Hands up out there, who's heard of the Field of the Cloth of Gold? Much more famous, this was the meeting in 1520, you can put your hands down now by the way, between Henry VIII and Francis of France, which has been hammered by historians as a vacuous spectacle. Well, sorry but monarchy is all about vacuous spectacle. The events at Ardre are very much the same, just a century or so earlier. 
Okay, so Richard and Charles were not the type to wrestle with each other like Henry and Francis did, but in terms of display, it was right up there. The event could well have cost £15,000 for the English to lay on, so that's 10% or more of the annual national tax burden, which is what they call a hill of beans. But Richard really had no choice. If he'd arrived looking like he'd come to read the metre, he might have saved all those beans, but he would have been failing in his kingly duty, would have lost enormous face and all that, and his own people would have been the very first to lay into him. Now, as it happens, he appears to have edged the competition. It was pretty much a draw on the costly gift-giving front. But every day, Richard appeared in clothes more magnificent than the previous. Now, Charles's kit on the first day drew suitable admiration, but there were gasps of horror when on the second day he turned up in the same kit. And the third. Oops. Richard won. Charles zip. Anyway, the point is that things have changed from the last time we spoke. In July 1388 at Westminster, Richard was a humbled boy, shorn of his friends, ruled by a continual council at war with France. At Ardre, for eight years later, Richard was very much in control, his own man, and very much pursuing his own policy, peace with France, not war. He left France with his six-year-old French bride, a symbol of the return to the attitudes of Henry III and Edward II. To get to this point, the years after the appellant's parliament were characterised on the face of it by a very changed and very much more sensible Richard. Over the next couple of episodes, as far as possible, it'll be interesting to see what you think about this supposed change of mind and character. But it is worth noting that most historians don't seem inclined to take the view that I take, admittedly in my state of innocence and comparative ignorance. That Richard was just biding his time and had neither forgiven nor forgotten, was just waiting for the chance to insert a bladed instrument between the collective ribs of the appellants, who had brought him low and humiliated him. That in his breast burnt a white-hot flame of pure fury and rage. Nope. Most historians think that Richard had realised the error of his ways, was working hard to become the king he ought to be. He was helped by the fact that in the year following the merciless parliament, the appellants make a bit of a horlicks of the whole thing. They came in on the ticket of good government and vigorous prosecution of the war in France and make a hash of both. In 1387, Arundel had apparently proved himself something of a military god by intercepting the French fleet. On the back of this, everyone had high hopes of Gloucester and Arundel's 1389 plan, a luxurious four-pronged assault, a naval assault by Arundel, an attack in Aquitaine by John of Gaunt, and then supporting attacks by allies from Ghent and Brittany. Well, if two out of three ain't bad, naught out of four sucks. The French twisted the arms of the Gentois and the Breton, and they backed out. John wandered around Gascony eating bonbons rather than attacking the French, because he'd just been made Duke of Aquitaine by Richard, and he wanted to consolidate his power. And Arundel's fleet left late, and basically did naff all. It was an expensive failure, and Arundel tried to fiddle his expenses claim to boot. Then to cap it all, the Scots once again made a monkey out of the English. 
here we get introduced to Harry Hotspur, much beloved of Shakespeare's Henry IV, and we have a new family name introduced to us. Hurrah! The Percys of Northumberland. Though I suspect we may have mentioned them already, as it happens. But the Percy name will come up many times over the next couple of hundred years at least, so hold on to it. The Percys are lords of vast holdings across the north of England, Northumberland in particular, and on the Scottish borders. Their only rival in the north on the English side of the line is the Neville family, soon to be equally, if not more famous, think Warwick the Kingmaker. We were talking about the Scots making monkeys out of the English. The border country between England and Scotland is now bandit country, depopulated and poor, suffering from constant raiding by men called the Reavers, men on both sides of the line who roved in small bands to take temporary advantage and rustle a few cattle. On the English side, the defence, and indeed attack, was organised by two powerful men, the Warden of the Eastern Marches, who at this stage is Henry Percy, and the Warden of the Western Marches, at this point in time, Ralph Neville. How the Battle of Otterburn came about is a matter of dispute. In all likelihood, it was just another of those constant border raids that come from each side. But if you believe the romantic ballad of Chevy Chase, it was all because The Persay out of Northumberlander avowed to God mayed he that he would haunt her in the mountains of Chiviat within days three, in the magar of Doch de Douglas, and all that oa with him be. Basically, the chivalric view was that Henry Percy was keen to go hunting on the lands of the Earl of Douglas. My bet is Percy had more material objectives, but either way, you should catch up with the Ballad of Chevy Chase. It's rather fun, not too long, and is on the website in translation for your delight and delectation. The English were given a beating at Otterburn, and Harry Hotspur was captured and therefore had to be ransomed. So despite all the promises the appellants had made at the merciless Parliament, they had to ask for taxation. From the Commons' point of view, it's terribly sucky. Richard began to feel a little bit more perky. By the autumn, he'd spotted opportunities to follow a wedgie policy. I don't mean by this that he went around unexpectedly pulling up his opponent's pants, though that is a delightful image. No, I mean he drives wedges between the appellants and the other lords and commons in Parliament, and between the appellants themselves. One of his opportunities came from livery and maintenance. In the second Parliament of 1388, at Cambridge, the Commons complained again about the problem of livery and maintenance. What this means is that by this stage the big magnates are maintaining very large affinities. By affinity, I mean a group of minor lords and paid household knights who sign up to become supporters of that magnate. Now these men in the affinity would wear the magnate's livery. In the case of the household knights, this might mean coloured robes of the magnate. In the case of the lords in the magnate's affinity, it might mean the wearing of a badge. The badge of the House of Lancaster, for example, was one of the interlocked S's. So that's the livery bit then. Well, nothing wrong with that, I hear you say. We humans are a tribal lot, whether it's football or the Friday night tiddlywink league. 
It's maintenance that really causes the problem, which in a sense is the outcome from all these guys wearing different colours and badges. Because many of these men, or their servants, wander around in gangs and beat people up, and if they get in trouble with the local law, the magnet flexes his muscles and gets them out of trouble. They are a bunch of the great men's bully boys, and the law of the land is flouted. So very cleverly, at the Cambridge Parliament of 1388, Richard offered to ban all his household knights from wearing badges, if the magnates would too. There's a great deal of foot-shuffling and tooth-sucking and navel-gazing by the magnates, and so that was a no then. And it made the magnates look really, really bad in front of the commons, and made Richard look really, really reasonable. Meanwhile, Richard is doing his bit to work with the continuous council that had been imposed on him. Now, given that life passes very quickly, and that before you can say knife, you look down as a sprightly 18-year-old, and look up as an overweight, greying 50-year-old bloke sat in a shed, before you know it, we will be talking continually about something called the Privy Council. This becomes, by Tudor times, the monarch's kitchen cabinet, his most intimate group of advisers. And it still exists in ceremonial form to this day. Well, this continuous council imposed on Richard II is the genesis of the Privy Council. And lo and behold, with angels and archangels and all of that, Richard works with it, collaboratively and meekly, but without being a doormat. A really good example is that he works hard to get his mates Oxford and Neville repatriated from their exile. It's a full and frank exchange of views in council, but when it's a no... There's no flouncing or slamming of doors from Richard. He just gets on with it. Then in May 1389, this happens in council. In walks Richard, all regal and so on, and pops out a question. How old am I? You You are are 20 20 years years old, old, sire. Then I am of full age to govern my house and household and also my kingdom. It seems to me unjust that my state should be worse than the least person in the kingdom. Surely any heir in my kingdom, when he has reached twenty years and his parents are dead, is permitted to conduct his own affairs freely. Why, therefore, should this be denied to me, when it is conceded by law to anyone else of lower rank? Sire, Sire, you you are are absolutely absolutely right, right, of course. You You should should indeed indeed have rule of your your kingdom. kingdom. It It is is yours yours by by right. right. Well, know that I have for long been ruled by tutors, and it was not possible for me to act at all, or almost not at all, without them. Now henceforth, I will remove those from my council, and as heir of lawful age, I will appoint those I will to my council and conduct my own affairs. So, this could be the signal for a bloodletting, and the revenge of a tyrant. But not a bit of it. I mean, yes... Gloucester and Warwick, the two leading appellants on the council, were removed, and the Chancellor was replaced. But the council remained. Richard made no other move against the appellants. And he appointed jolly sensible people to replace those officers of state that he'd got rid of. So the reliable and professional William Wickham, for example, was back as Chancellor, not some toady fly-by-night. In November 1389... John of Gaunt returned from his Castilian adventure. 
Essentially, without going into detail, Gaunt had rather struggled with the whole thing. It started off fine, concluding a treaty with the Portuguese in 1387, which, incidentally, remains England's oldest treaty. He'd even set up a small court in Galicia, in the northwest of Spain, but then it had all started going pooward. The Castellians avoided battle. Gaunt wasted his time sitting fruitlessly in front of towns while his men died of sickness. And to cut a long story short, he concluded a treaty with the Castilians whereby he gave up his wife's claim to the throne in return for a large annual payment and the marriage of his daughter Catherine to the Castilian king's son. And then he ran for home, running fast, as fast as he could. Now, before he'd gone, there'd been all manner of suspicious goings-on with him, as we've heard, not just between Richard and John, but also from all the chroniclers who absolutely hated Gaunt and slated him. On his return, everything was strangely different. You know the way this happens. You've got some well-known public figure, and one day you wake up and they've been around so long they've become a kind of national institution. Stephen Fry, Billy Connolly, Bob Geldof, that sort of thing. Gaunt was suddenly in favour with the chroniclers, and I guess actually it's not hard to see why. Firstly, he'd now given up his claim to Castile, so couldn't be accused of using public money for his own ends as he had been before. And secondly, the last time he'd gone away, the whole place had gone up in flames. So welcome back. Richard's attitude himself was also entirely changed. He basically welcomed Gaunt back, and he made darn sure that if there had been roll-your-own-cigarettes around in those days, you wouldn't have been able to put a cigarette paper between the two of them. He made Gaunt Duke of Aquitaine in 1390, and Gaunt, in return, supported Richard to the hilt. The idea of the king being kicked around by his subjects deeply offended Gaunt's own enhanced sensibilities of his own rights and privileges as a magnate, and he was determined not to see Richard abused. He used his power and position to bring reconciliation between Richard and Gloucester. He patched up his own quarrels with the Percys. Gaunt's enormous wealth now underpinned the throne, and it had firmer foundations as a result. So Richard established control in two ways. By driving wedges between the appellants and building up his own affinity. In terms of wedges, as we'd seen, Gloucester and Warwick had been thrown off the council, but Henry Bolingbroke was actually appointed onto it at the time of the King's declaration of his coming of age. You may remember that Bolingbroke had been wined and dined on that evening when the appellants had made their demands. Clearly Richard felt he was more sympathetic. Despite this, there's a very curious incident in 1388. Richard sent Bolingbroke a breastplate as a present. It was given on the 13th of February, the anniversary of the Judgment of De Vere. It had belonged to a chap called John Beecham, who had been executed by the appellants. The breastplate wasn't particularly expensive, certainly not compared to the sorts of things the fabulously wealthy Bolingbroke regularly wore. So was this genuinely a present? Or was it actually a threat? But anyway, for the moment, Richard's strategy was to separate the junior appellants from the senior. He'd worked on Bolingbroke, and now he worked on Mowbray, the Earl of Nottingham, and easily detached him from his colleagues, because Mowbray was an ambitious man. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In the 1390s, Nottingham is constantly at court or on diplomatic missions. On the face of it, Richard continued to work amicably with all of the appellants, but the senior appellants were never close to him as they once had been. As an example of the differences between them, Richard's attitude to the war with France, as we've said, was very different to those of the appellants. Richard essentially had no interest in it. Philosophically, he felt closer to the French king than he did to his own lords. He shared Charles' exalted view of kingship, and like Henry III, saw the French king as his brother. Also, war was a massive drain on resources. Even without sending an army to France, the Barbicans, the coastal castles of Cherbourg, Brest and Calais cost vast sums to maintain. A massive drain in resources meant the need for taxes from Parliament and the need to bargain and compromise. So Richard concluded a truce with France in 1389 as soon as he was able. Even with his desire for peace, a permanent treaty proved impossible, failing on the question of sovereignty and homage, but Richard had no intention of actually fighting. Now you might think everyone would be happy with this. Peace, surely, is the fervent desire of us all. Well, you'd be a jelly-legged, fish-livered weakling in the view of Gloucester, Arundel, and vast swathes of the nobility and gentry. You have to remember that this is their job, this is what they do. Killing people for gold and glory, it's what they do and what makes them happy. With the war removed, a significant source of income and opportunity to get ahead had been taken away. Gloucester's open opposition to the peace kept him at arm's length, but as shown by his presence at Ardre, Gaunt's good offices kept him in the inner circle. This wasn't the case of Richard Fitzalan, the Earl of Arundel. His breach with the king remained raw and open. In 1394, Arundel launched an attack on Richard and Gaunt, claiming that Gaunt's influence was overbearing and too strong. Arundel clearly thought the Parliament would rise in supportive fury around him. But as he looked round the chamber, all he saw was a sudden obsession with fingernails, tuneless whistling and looking at the ceiling. And it dawned on him just how badly he'd misjudged the mood, and he was forced to make a full apology. Another example of Arundel's alienation came at the death of the Queen, Anne of Bohemia. Anne had been rather unpopular when she arrived in England because she brought no money, no great political advantage. By the time of her death in 1394, at the tender age of 28, it was all very different. As is sadly usual, the real personality of the Queen isn't well documented, but the evidence is that she had earned the respect of the political elite. She had basically fulfilled the traditional role of the Queen, interceding with the King to show mercy for the peasants in 1381, for John of Northampton and for others. She had had a cultural influence with her household at court, with the arrival, amongst other things, of the horned style of headdress. 
She'd introduced the concept of riding side saddle, interestingly enough, and many of the habits at court grew up from her influence. She was clearly intelligent, with a command of three languages, and she was trusted. The nobility often came to her to mediate in disputes between them. She and Richard, as far as we can tell, seemed to love each other. Very unusually for medieval kings and queens, Anne was with Richard throughout all his itineraries. Their tomb originally had them holding hands. They wrote when they were apart. The only blot on this relationship was the lack of a child, a major problem, of course, and a problem of increasing importance. Who knows why? The simple theory is that one of them was infertile. The rather wilder theory that Richard was an odd chap, obsessed by the cult of Edward the Confessor, so maybe they abstained from sex completely. Who knows? Who can tell? And indeed, anyone for the last chockice. Richard then incidentally married the six-year-old Isabel, daughter of Charles VI, as we said earlier, diplomatically a great choice. In terms of quickly getting an heir, rubbish. Henry VIII would have laid eggs, and Richard's contemporaries couldn't understand why he was so relaxed about it all. When Anne died of the plague at Sheen Palace, Richard was beside himself with grief, and he had the entire palace destroyed, which is a little extravagant, it has to be said. And then at the funeral, Arundel turned up contemptuously late. And then, to make it even worse, he asked to leave early, and Richard snapped. He grabbed a baton from the attendant and smashed Arundel round the head so that he fell to the ground with blood all over the place. And then he banged him in the tower for a week. It speaks to the gap that still existed between appellant and king. So in summary, Richard's relationships with the appellants varied. Bolingbroke and Nottingham he brought within the circle as far as he could. With Gloucester he maintained an uneasy peace, supported by Gaunt. With Arundel his relationship was barely disguised hatred and distrust, while Warwick, the last, basically withdrew from court and political life. It seems to have made little difference. In the end, none of this would save any of them. Meanwhile, Richard did what no other king had done before him. He built up his very own affinity, just as though he was himself a magnate, using his own badge, the Silver Heart. Heart as in deer, by the way, rather than pump. Kings didn't do this. They were due deference and loyalty from all. They had no needs of indentures and liveries and retinues. But Richard had been isolated and wanted what the magnates had, people and supporters around him. More traditionally, he rewarded and built his own party, and a key strand in this were the families connected with the royal family. So, for example, the Hollands. We've heard a bit about John Holland, and really, none of it's good. Just to remind you again, he's Richard's half-brother, the son of Richard's mother, Joan of Kent, by her marriage before she married the Black Prince. Holland is the chap who ran Ralph Stafford through with the sword because of an argument between their servants. In 1386, he'd gone with Gaunt to Spain and seduced Gaunt's daughter. Gaunt was forced to hurriedly marry the pair. Holland proved as rubbish at warfare as he was of controlling himself, and in 1388 he simply abandoned his army and went home. Despite this, Richard made him Earl of Huntingdon and heaped presents and riches on him. Which brings us to the Beauforts. So, we've heard about Catherine Swinford, Gaunt's mistress. 
Catherine must have been something special. In medieval days, there was nothing wrong with a man having a mistress or even bastards. But he had to keep them away from the wife and his legitimate family. Gaunt and Catherine had four children, John, Henry, Thomas and Joan. For many years, Gaunt kept open house with Catherine and medieval England was scandalised, ladies and gentlemen, scandalised. It was clearly an insult to his second wife, Constanza. Gaunt bowed to the pressure, and Catherine was removed and lived, apparently separately, in enormous luxury. She had a townhouse in the Minster Yard in Lincoln, which is still there, should you be interested. Anyway, despite this separation, oddly, Gaunt kept a stable of twelve horses for her at his own court. Now, I may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but if I was Constanza, I would have smelled a rat. This separation was just for show. Catherine did what almost no mistress did in the Middle Ages and made the transition from mistress to wife. Because when Constanza died, Gaunt and Catherine were married in 1396 at Lincoln Cathedral. Catherine's influence and the respect in which she was held must have been immense. She was without doubt the unchallenged matriarch of the vast Lancastrian clan. One impact of the marriage was to legitimise their children, the Beauforts, who became recognised as legitimate by papal bull and royal patent. John Beaufort became the Earl of Somerset in 1397. One hundred years later, through their descendants, this will be very relevant as the Beauforts keep the Lancastrian claim to the throne alive during the Yorkist heyday. In the short term, the Beauforts, like the Hollands, were heaped with honours and riches, and tied to Richard's wagon, and tied to Richard's wagon. None were closer, though, than Edward of Rutland, the son of Edmund of York, the king's uncle. In the words of a chronicler, there was no man in the world whom Richard loved better. He made Edward Earl of Rutland, Admiral of the Fleet, and he would be a major ally in the conflagration to follow. As the years went by, Richard's independence grew, though always within a framework of collaborative and reasonable governance. He brought in many other families, the Percy's in particular, and as his control of patronage and power strengthened, so his confidence grew. Although Gaunt had been made Duke of Aquitaine, as we said, he didn't prove a great success at the role, and Gaunt slowly found himself less and less at the centre of power. In the end, Gaunt's support for Richard benefited Richard more than it did Gaunt. Richard's prestige was bolstered considerably by his first visit to Ireland. From an English perspective, Ireland was a mess. Although Edward the Bruce's invasion in 1315 had been a miserable failure, it had left a legacy in the resurgence of power of the Gaelic lords. The great Anglo-Irish lordships were forced to continuously defend themselves against attack, but became also increasingly independent of the English crown. That's not to say that the Anglo-Irish integrated with Gaelic society, for they did nothing of the kind. And not to say they didn't value the connection with the English royal family, but they would have nothing to do with the concept of doing what they were told by the English king. They left England with two strategic choices. 
either to spend a whole load of time and money re-establishing their control over the Anglo-Irish and indeed Gaelic lords, or withdrawing to Dublin and the coastal pale. In the 14th century, they chose to fight. In the end, they got precisely nowhere, and so in the 15th century, they chose withdrawal to the Pale of Dublin. But despite this, Richard's expedition in 1394 to Ireland seemed to have been a great success. His strategy was to bring the Gaelic lords to submission, but as subjects of his kingships, rather than expelling them. So once they submitted, he'd offer them the benefits of that submission, addressing their grievances and bringing good government. So duly, his expedition subdued McMurrah in Leinster, and the other Gaelic lords fell over themselves to submit, from Ulster, Connacht, Munster and Clare. And so Richard was able to return in triumph and majesty and claim enormous victory. In fact, it was a right buggers muddle. Richard sought to bring the Gaelic lords within the structure of the English polity. The Gaelic lords knew this was a great deal, because to do so, he had to confirm them as tenants-in-chief of the English crown and confirm them in their lands and rights. So now they had the English crown to protect them against their oppressors, the Anglo-Irish. So let's take as an example the Earl of March and the O'Neill Gaelic lords in Ulster. The Earl of March demanded O'Neill give him his homage. The Anglo-Irish Earl of March demanded O'Neill give him his homage. In turn, O'Neill demanded protection from Richard. Caught in an impossible logic loop, Richard couldn't answer. He could make no judgment without stripping one of these two men of their rights and then ran away. Once he'd gone, he left a problem that would erupt into violence and by 1398 Richard's settlement had unravelled and the Earl of March had been ambushed and killed. By 1397, Richard was a king apparently in complete control and ruling as a king should. He worked with his magnates, he conceded some points and held the line on others. He exercised his patronage, he worked with Parliament, just like Edward III. There were differences. The war was won, the flavour of court was another. To the likes of Edward III and the traditional English kingship, the court of Richard was an odd place indeed. Richard's regime was court-centred in a way that would not reappear fully until Tudor times. Life at court became more and more refined and more and more civilian, quite unlike the court of Edward III. And it was formal. Oh, good Lord, was it formal. Now, do any of you remember our episode about Henry II? You might remember Bishop Hugh of Lincoln, out of favour with the king, squeezing onto a log next to Henry II and jossing him back into good humour by reminding him of his bastard ancestry. You might remember how painful poor old Peter of Blois had found the whole Angevin court thing. Well, poor old Peter would have eaten his liver at the court of Richard II. Hugh would have been toast the moment he looked at Richard, not that he would have found Richard sitting logside. Richard was crazily concerned with the royal dignity. Courtly life became a series of unfolding set pieces and occasions, visitors being received, gifts being bestowed, and the splendour of the king's majesty revealed to his people at crown wearings. 
The emphasis was on the richness of ceremony and on deference to the king. Richard would sit on his throne from dinner to vespers, i.e. sundown, surrounded by his court. All was silent. If the king's glance happened to take you in, you knelt and bowed. My grandmother always said children were to be seen and not heard. Well, that was the way of court. If you were not spoken to, you kept your mouth shut. Here's the famous and deeply worrying contemporary quote. He ordered a throne to be prepared for him in his chamber, on which he sat ostentatiously from dinner till vespers, talking to no one, but watching everyone. And when his eye fell on anyone, that person had to bend his knee to the king. It's all very, very un-English. The very language of court changed. Traditionally, the king had been addressed in the same way as other great lords, primus inter pares, first amongst equals. Now Richard makes a qualitative difference. We get the introduction of loftier and more exalted terms. Richard was addressed as prince, your majesty, your highness. Petitions from parliament are vomit-inducingly humble, oily and obsequious. Tournaments become much more elaborate, grand and ceremonial. Richard linked all of this to Edward the Confessor and consciously invoked the theocratic nature of kingship and London as a kind of New Jerusalem. Now this isn't unique. Certainly in France and elsewhere in Europe, royal courts have been going the same way for some time. But for England, this was just a little bit weird. So, I think we'll leave Richard there on his throne, revelling in his Boston in 1397. Next week, we'll have a bit of a diversion, I think, and follow a few years of Henry Bolingbroke's life. In terms of this week's thanks, a big thank you to two donators I have completely failed to recognise, David and Mary, who both contribute through the flatter button on my website. Mary is also a great contributor to the Facebook group and David... Well, David has been encouraging me since the start, when we met through a shared enthusiasm for Mike Duncan, for which support I am very grateful. And my thanks also to everyone for listening, for all your comments on the History of England website, iTunes and Facebook. Good luck everyone, and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.